let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time tonight. We thank you for this wonderful book, Mere Christianity, and for Lewis's work on it. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth through this book, that the truth of your scripture would take residence in our hearts, and that through that we would be drawn more and more into the things of your kingdom. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I am delighted to welcome all of you here tonight and thank you for uh, taking your St. Patrick's Day plans and putting them on hold uh, to be able to join us tonight. Delighted to have you here with us. And as always, um, let's begin with saying together our scripture verse. This verse from 2 Peter is one that is so rich for the times in which we find ourselves. So I'd invite you to say this along with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And this is just such a beautiful passage that reminds us of God's love and the fact that God has granted promises to us. Those of us who belong to Jesus Christ have promises that we can look forward to and that is a great encouragement uh, when times are complicated. So I want to say a special word of welcome to anyone who is new. Um, we continue to get new folks every week. And so just a couple of reminders about how to approach this class. You can have any level of commitment that you would like. You can be on the beach, which means you just show up when you feel like it. You don't read anything. You just listen. Uh, if you want to, or you might want to watch TV and uh, keep your screen dark so we don't know what you're doing, that is all fine. I'm glad to have you on whatever terms. Or you can be snorkeling, which means that you do a deeper dive on the things that you find interesting, but not so much on the rest. Or you can scuba dive, which means you read the chapter before we go through the class, you read it again after, you read all the handouts, you read uh, the different things that I send out in the email, listen to the uh, music links and all of those kinds of things. And I am delighted to have some scuba divers, but don't feel bad if you wanna just be on the beach, that's totally fine too. But I do wanna say, if you are not on my email list, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email and ask me to put you on the list. Um, there's a lot of good information that comes out on that email list um, that I would commend to you. Those of you that are scuba diving, um, there was a wonderful article from the Encyclopedia of Philosophy about uh, virtues and Thomas Aquinas uh, that is really worth your time if you want to do that dive on that. And then also just a word about how to read this book. I've talked to so many people in this class who had the same experience that I did the first time that I tried to read Mere Christianity, and they really didn't like it, but most of us were embarrassed to admit it, 
because it's a book that people talk about and say it changed their life. It's sort of embarrassing if you didn't like it. But the problem for me, and I think for many people, is that we didn't read it the right way. Uh, because this book was originally written as broadcast talks, uh, it really needs to be read one chapter at a time. Reading it out loud is a great way to help understand it and get the pace right. And then the C.S. Lewis doodle is a great little uh, way of getting some extra help on some things if you need it. So I want to play something for um, tonight's music. And I would invite you, if you think you know what it is, um, to send a chat about it. Okay, Elizabeth Scott already got the answer, but I'm going to keep playing it. As many of you guessed, I figured that was going to be an easy one. That is St. Patrick's Breastplate, also known as the Lorica, which means the deer's cry. Um, this was written uh, by St. Patrick sometime probably around the year 435. St. Patrick was born in 386 in England. And uh, one of the things that is interesting about him is that he is one of the best attested saints out of any of the saints of the early church. We have a number of things that we are absolutely certain that he wrote. Um, that him, there's a very, very strong tradition that he wrote it. Um, there's a gap of about 150 years in there, but most scholars who really um, know about Patrick believe he really did write that hymn. And I would commend that hymn to you when it comes out uh, in the email, uh, because the words to it are absolutely remarkable. Many people, uh, all they know about St. Patrick is the idea of green beer and shamrocks. And that is a great shame because Patrick was brilliant. Um, he was deeply gifted and he wrote some really amazing things. I'm gonna attach for scuba divers the Confessio of St. Patrick uh, in the email for this week, because it is one of the great theological statements of what it means to be a Christian from the early church. And for those of you who don't know St. Patrick's story, I'm just going to ask you to indulge me for a moment because it's quite remarkable. Patrick's parents were Romans who were Christians, and they lived in a place called Beneventum Tabernii, um, in England, near the west coast of England. And when Patrick was a teenager, he was kidnapped by pirates and sold into slavery in Ireland. But he was deep in his faith. He prayed to God every night. And one night he had a vision that he should leave and go to the coast of Ireland where there would be a ship waiting for him. 
Well, that's not a very specific vision, but he continued to pray and he did manage to escape and walked the hundred plus miles. And when he got to the shore, there was a ship waiting for him. And he went back to England, um, but, and then later went to France to seminary and was trained as a priest and an evangelist and had another vision of being called back to this heathen country of Ireland. And so he went back as a missionary and had a phenomenal ministry converting these pagans in Ireland. And I personally am very thankful for that because the McGreevies uh, who lived in County Roscommon, which was one of the areas where he did a lot of work, can trace to when they were converted by Patrick in 435. So he is worth learning about. Um, he's much more than green beer. So uh, I would encourage you uh, to think about snorkeling about Patrick when the email comes out. So uh, going back to mere Christianity, just a review of context, England in wartime, the BBC is broadcasting these talks. It's 1942 when these particular chapters are coming out during the Baedeker bombing of England where all of the great cultural and heritage sites are being bombed by the Nazis. And so we're gonna review as we always do because this book is a sequential argument. And Lewis started this book with a section called right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. And he did this because he thought he wanted to start with what people could observe. There were not always people who were very full of faith in God. They thought maybe God was not real. And so he wanted to start with nature. And he said, there are two things you can observe about nature. And humans have this law about how they ought to behave, what people think is right behavior, um, but they break that law. Unlike stones with the law of gravity that have no choice but to fall. And then that first book, part of the implication of it is that the church, that means us, if you're a Christian, the church has the responsibility to, to expound the faith in terms that ordinary men and women can understand. And that is so important in the culture in which we live today. And this whole idea of letting go of the pride that so many of us are tempted with and adopting what we studied in that little Tim Keller passage about gospel humility and self-forgetfulness. And this whole idea of story, beauty and transcendence as gateways to the gospel and the fact that we must serve as translators of spiritual truth. So the second book, the second series of talks, what Christians believe uh, was what the BBC asked Lewis to do next. And Lewis said that part of his understanding about Christianity came from the realization when he was an atheist that all of his objections about the universe being so cruel and unjust actually pointed him toward God because there was no way to get the idea of just and unjust if the universe had no meaning. So he says, we are in enemy occupied territory, which is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and calling us to take part in a secret campaign of sabotage. And when we go to church, we're listening in to the wireless. And that is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. Going to church means you're gonna hear the word of God, you're gonna be focused in worship, and those kinds of things enable you to begin 
to be an effective soldier in this enemy occupied territory. Lewis then talks about free will and how it is the only thing that makes anything worth having possible, that there's no way to have happiness apart from God. There is no such thing. We see that in the despair in our culture. Uh, and then he says that one of the most shocking things about Christianity is that Jesus claimed to be the being from outside the world who had made it, who appeared on this earth and began talking about forgiving sins. No one else in the history of mankind ever said anything like that. And then Lewis's famous trilemma, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. And then Lewis goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus came to teach, but much more than that, he did not come just to give us advice. He came to change the world by dying for our sins. This atonement enables us to have a relationship with God, a fresh start, and to have this new Christ life, that mystical spiritual indwelling when we come to faith in Jesus Christ that draws us out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of God. He then goes on um, to prepare us for book three as we think about this great truth and paradox of the Christian life from Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that brings us to book three, the one we're in right now, Christian Behavior, um, the 1942 book, um, started on Sunday afternoon, September 20th, 1942. And he starts this book off talking about the three parts of morality. And this is something, if you haven't read this part, I would really encourage you to do that because it's so important. And it's part of what makes moral discourse so difficult in our culture right now, because we've only remembered the first part of morality and forgotten the second two parts. So Lewis says there's that old story about the schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. And he replied as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And that's certainly the way that many people in the world uh, think about God and think about Christians too, that we're out there to stop anyone having fun. But in fact, as Lewis says, moral rules are rules for their directions for running the human machine, a sort of owner's manual, if you will, that are designed to stop breakdowns or strains in that machine. And then Lewis uses this great analogy of a fleet of ships sailing in formation and how for that to happen, each ship has to be carefully trying to stay on course and avoid running into the others. So there's that dimension of paying attention to what's happening with the other ships. The second dimension though, is that each ship has to be mechanically in good shape. It's steering, it's rudder, it's engine, all must be in top condition so that they respond when you tell it to move a certain way. And then the third thing is the destination of the voyage. No matter how beautifully in formation the ships are, if the fleet is sailing to Calcutta 
when they're supposed to be going to New York, that is a failure. So Lewis says these three parts of morality are fair play and harmony between individuals. That's the ships staying in the right formation with respect to each other. The second part is the tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual. That's each individual ship looking at whether its steering is working and the engine's in good shape. And then the third, the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for. That's the destination of the voyage. And Lewis says with these three things that the problem we run into is many people will say, it can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else any harm. But as Lewis says, that person is only thinking about fair play and harmony between individuals. And he says the second thing is really important, that you can't tell ships how to steer to avoid collisions if they're such crazy old tubs that they can't be steered at all. And he goes on to say all that thinking about societal improvement will be mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system work properly. You cannot make men good by law, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. I could give a whole political discourse on that, but I won't. Uh, so he then follows up by saying that individual morality is deeply connected to beliefs about the universe because he says different beliefs about the universe lead to different behavior. Religion, the Christian faith, involves a series of statements about facts that either have to be true or false. They can't be both. So if these facts are true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right sailing of the human fleet. If they are false, quite a different one. So if a man believes that nothing can be wrong unless it hurts some other human being, he has let go of the idea that what he does has any impact on anyone else. But as Lewis says, does it not make a great difference whether his ship or his own property is not, is his own property or not? And he says, this is where these worldviews really make a difference. If you don't believe there's any such thing as eternal life, then a state or a nation or a civilization, which might last for hundreds, if not a thousand years, is more important than an individual. But if what Christianity says is true, that people are made in the image of God and destined to live eternally with God or without him, the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important because he is everlasting and the life of the civilization is only a moment. So he says, to really think about morality, you have to think about all three of these. Morality between people, within each person and between the person and God. So implications of that, we as Christians need to re-engage with the truth and beauty of God's law as expressed in Psalm 19. That Psalm starts off the heavens declare the glory of God, but it goes on in a little bit later in the Psalm to talk about the beauty of the law of the Lord. And we have been so conditioned by our culture to think that any kind of restriction is bad, that we miss out on the beauty of God's plan, the beauty of God's law. And as we've said before, think about just with the Ten Commandments. What if people actually lived by those? 
no stealing, no murder, no lying, no adultery, honoring parents, um, honoring God, all of those kinds of things. Imagine how much more beautiful life would be. So the second thing that we as Christians need to do is we need to take the initiative to be bridge builders. We have been given by Jesus the ministry of reconciliation. And in our culture right now, the loudest and most strident voices proclaim loudly that identity and personal morality are constructs that are solely the purview of the individual. You are your own creator and you are responsible to no one except yourself. Your highest good is to create and speak your truth. And the only way to get around that for us as Christians is to build bridges, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. So that brings us to the second chapter, the cardinal virtues. And as Lewis says, classically, there's seven virtues. The four cardinals are the ones that are the hinge um, that lead to the virtuous life, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. We talked about how they sound old fashioned, uh, which is a sad commentary on our society. Um, and especially temperance, not about drinking, but it's about all pleasures, taking them in the right way, going the right length and no further. And as Lewis says, the main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. If there was any idea that God had set us a sort of exam and we might get good marks by deserving them, that has to be wiped out. The great Christian writer Dallas Willard observed this, grace, the basis of our salvation in Christ is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And so many times in the church, we are so wary of legalism and trying to earn our salvation that we just sort of let go and don't try. But in fact, grace and the scriptures commend effort on our part to follow Jesus actively. We should not be inert in our Christian life. Then last week's chapter on social morality, uh, which is one that I would commend to you because it's really relevant right now. And the first thing he says is that Jesus didn't come to preach any brand new morality. Most of the morality of the New Testament comes right out of the Old Testament. But the second thing to remember is that there is no Christian political program. Do as you would be done by, as Lewis puts it, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, that is what Christians are required to do. And Lewis says, when people say the church ought to give us a lead, that's not usually what they mean. What they usually mean is taking a position on some controversial political issue. But what Lewis says is that the church ought to be referring to the whole body of practicing Christians and that every practicing Christian who's concerned about society and culture and politics ought to have as their first goal living out do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If every single Christian did that, uh, then our social problems might be gotten over pretty quickly. Lewis then talks about the clergy and how many people expect the clergy to make pronouncements about politics. And Lewis says that's silly, that clergy are the people trained and set aside to look after what concerns us as creatures who are going to live forever. And asking them to take a lead in politics is to give them a job for which they've not been trained, a job that is really on 
the layman. Um, and Lewis uh, does a great job here of pointing out that clergy ought to be concerned about what's going on in this world, but that their real focus is on the kingdom of God and teaching people about the kingdom of God. So he then goes on to talk a little bit about what a fully Christian society might look like. And he goes through different bits that have um, scriptural foundations for them. And he says, the result of that is that each of us would like some bits of it, but I'm afraid very few of us would like the whole thing. That's just what one would expect if Christianity is the total plan for the human machine. You will find this again and again about anything that's really Christian. Everyone is attracted by bits of it and wants to pick out those bits and leave the rest. He also has a little uh, parenthetical about interest and lending money and interest and that's something at least to be thinking about whether that's really a good thing. He then goes on to talk, talk about work and giving and that the New Testament is very clear that everyone must work uh, unless they're absolutely unable and that everyone must work in order that they may be able to give to those who are in need. Charity giving to the poor is an essential part of Christian morality. Giving to the church, giving to the needy, giving to missions and evangelism, that is part and parcel of what it means to be Christian. And Lewis says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare, a rule that he very quietly but faithfully lived out. He gave away all of the royalties from his books, uh, which is quite remarkable. And the next section he talks about fear and that the obstacle for many of us to charity of giving away our money is not so much in our luxurious living or desire for more money, but our fear, our fear of insecurity. And he says that must be recognized as a temptation. We wanna have a rainy day fund, but not just for a rainy day, for a rainy decade. And so we wanna hoard up those things so that we can put our security in them. So the conclusion of the chapter, the most important part, Lewis says this, a Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us really want it. And we are not going to want it until we become fully Christian. I may repeat, do as you would be done by till I am black in the face, but I cannot really carry it out till I love my neighbor as myself. I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself till I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so, as I warned you, we are driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters, for the longest way round is the shortest way home. And what Lewis is saying here, I think is exactly right. We don't like to hear it because we like the idea of a political program that seems easier to manage than actually trying to be sold out to following Jesus. But what we see, and we've talked about this before, in Jesus's own ministry is he is not interested in trying to put forth a political program or a way to save society or to reform the government. His whole emphasis is on individuals, on loving the individuals that God puts in his path, of seeking to lead them into relationship with God and helping them to become part of that kingdom that is eternal the one that is not built with hands, but the one 
whose author and builder is God himself. So that brings us to tonight's chapter, Morality and Psychoanalysis. And this is a great chapter. And I have to say, I just need to give a little disclaimer here that I love this chapter uh, because I think one of the great deceptions in our modern world is an over-reliance and veneration of Sigmund Freud, not just his theories of psychoanalysis, but a lot of his worldview um, that has been subconsciously adopted and is taught by many, many, many schools, um, not just in psychology departments, but it's the lens through which most literature and often history is viewed. So Lewis uh, in this chapter starts off uh, with a bang. So let's just jump right in. Lewis puts it this way. I've said we should never get a Christian society unless most of us become Christian individuals. That does not mean, of course, we can put off doing anything about society until some imaginary date in the far future. It means we must begin both jobs at once. The seeing how do as you would be done by can be applied in detail to modern society and to the job of becoming the sort of people who really would apply it if we saw how. I now want to begin considering what the Christian idea of a good man is, the Christian specification for the human machine. So Freud's worldview. First of all, since Christian morality claims to be a technique for putting the human machine right, I think you would like to know how it's related to another technique which seems to make a similar claim namely psychoanalysis. Now you want to distinguish very clearly between two things, between the actual medical theories and techniques of the psychoanalyst and the general philosophical view of the world, which Freud and some others have gone on to add to this. Now, what Lewis is talking about here with psychoanalysis is basically the idea that Freud was one of the proponents of that there is a way through talking about issues by doing therapy, having people talk, having questions asked, all of that by the therapist, there is a way through that that you can begin to bring healing to people. And that is really, really important. And we are blessed that there is a whole field of Christian psychology and psychiatry now that uses some of those techniques but what Lewis says that is also very important, the second thing, the philosophy of Freud is in direct contradiction to Christianity. That is very important to hear because a lot of um, secular psychotherapists not only use psychoanalytic techniques, but they are coming from Freud's worldview. So all of those things like the Oedipus complex, the Electra complex, all of that kind of stuff that is not really psychoanalysis. That is more part of Freud's philosophy, which is not actually, when you research it, based scientifically. So you have to be very, very careful about um, going to therapists, uh, if you are a Christian, um, who are not coming from a Christian worldview. Um, Lewis also points out quite correctly that Freud's philosophy is in direct contradiction to the other great psychologist Jung, who used to work with Freud until they had 
such a huge blow up between them that they um, discredited one another's work and didn't want to speak to each other for the rest of their lives. Furthermore, when Freud's talking about how to cure neurotics, he's speaking as a specialist in his own subject. But when he goes on to talk general philosophy, he's speaking as an amateur. It's therefore quite sensible to attend to him with respect in the one case and not in the other. And that is what I do. I'm all the readier to do it because I found that when he's talking off his own subject and on a subject I do know something about, namely languages, he is very ignorant. But psychoanalysis itself, apart from all the philosophical additions that Freud and others have made to it, is not in the least contradictory to Christianity. So Lewis is now gonna talk about the role of psychoanalysis and what we can learn from it. He says, when a man makes a moral choice, two things are involved. One is the act of choosing. The other is the various feelings, impulses, and so on, which his psychological outfit presents him with and which are the raw material of his choice. Now this raw material may be of two kinds. Either it may be what we would call normal, it may consist of the sort of feelings that are common to all men, or else it may consist of quite unnatural feelings due to things that have gone wrong in his subconscious. Thus, fear of things that are really dangerous would be an example of the first kind. An irrational fear of cats or spiders would be an example of the second kind. The desire of a man for a woman would be of the first kind. The perverted desire of a man for a man would be of the second. Now what psychoanalysis undertakes to do is to remove the abnormal feelings, that is to give the man better raw material for his acts of choice. Morality is concerned with the acts of choice themselves. Now, unless you've been under a rock, you will know that what Lewis is saying in this paragraph is very controversial today. Many people uh, in our culture want to say that um, the whole idea of normal is something we should do away with because anything, if it's what the majority of people experience, it stops people who don't feel that way from acting out on their feelings. And that stops them from speaking their truth and being authentic. Um, of course, the Christian belief is that we are to be conformed, not to our own desires, but be conformed to Christ and the scriptures. So um, any sort of psychoanalysis that tells you um, that you should speak your own truth and you should act out on your feelings, regardless of whether um, those are things that have traditionally be, been considered moral and good, any kind of psychoanalysis that encourages that kind of uh, behavior is not something that is gonna be helpful from a Christian standpoint. Lewis then uses an analogy about three men who go to war, obviously one very much on people's minds when this was being broadcast. So many people on list just waiting to be called up. One man has the ordinary natural fear of danger that any man has and he subdues it by moral effort and becomes a brave man. Let us suppose that the other two men have as a result of things in their subconsciousness, exaggerated irrational fears, which no amount of moral effort can do anything about. Now suppose a psychoanalyst comes along and cures these two men. 
That is, he puts them both back in the position of the first man. Well, it is just then that the psychoanalytical problem is over and the moral problem begins. Because now that they are cured, these two men might take quite different lines. The first might say, thank goodness I've gotten rid of all those doodahs. Now at last, I can do what I always wanted to do, do my duty to the cause of freedom. But the other one might say, well, I'm very glad that I now feel moderately cool under fire. But of course, that doesn't alter the fact that I'm still jolly well determined to look after number one and let the other chap do the dangerous job whenever I can. Indeed, one of the good things about feeling less frightened is that I can now look after myself much more efficiently and can be much cleverer at hiding the fact from the others. Now, this difference is a purely moral one and psychoanalysis cannot do anything about it. So Lewis says here that moral choice is the important thing. However much you improve the man's raw material, you have still got something else, the real free choice of the man on the material, the issue presented to him, either to put his own advantage first or to put it last, i.e. to serve himself or to serve others. And this free choice is the only thing that morality is concerned with. The bad psychological material is not a sin, but a disease. It does not need to be repented of, but to be cured. So Lewis then goes on to talk about why judging others is wrong. And remember, judgmental is the first word that comes to mind when you do those men on the street interviews with people under the age of 35, and you ask them, what's the first word that comes into your mind when you hear the word Christian? And the top answer is judgmental. So that would suggest that all of us, not just all of you, but me too, we have a problem with judging others. And Lewis has some great insights for us here. He says, human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it's quite possible that in God's eyes, he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the VC. The VC is the Victoria Cross, um, like the Medal of Honor in our country. When a man who has been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may in God's eyes be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. It is as well to put this the other way around. Some of us who seem quite nice people may in fact have made so little use of a good heredity and a good upbringing that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. Can we be quite certain how we should have behaved if we had been saddled with the psychological outfit and then with the bad upbringing and then with the power say of Himmler? Himmler of course, one of Hitler's right-hand men. That is why Christians are told not to judge. Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge, Jesus says very clearly. We as humans see only the results which a man's choices 
make out of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. Most of the man's psychological makeup is probably due to his body. When his body dies, all that will fall off him. And the real central man, the thing that chose, that made the best or the worst out of this material, will stand naked. All sorts of nice things, which we thought our own, but which were really due to a good digestion, will fall off some of us. All sorts of nasty things, which were due to complexes or bad health, will fall off of others. We shall then, for the first time, see everyone as he really was. There will be surprises. Ouch. So Lewis then goes on to talk about the bargain view of morality versus the power of choices. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I will reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing, that is, punish you. I do not think that's the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. And I think what Lewis is getting at here is just exactly what we see in Romans 12 at the beginning of the chapter, when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, what is true and acceptable and perfect. And the problem for so many of us is that we are being conformed. Those choices, we are being conformed to the world instead of being transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ. So Lewis says this is all about the transforming power of choice. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. That explains what always used to puzzle me about Christian writers. They seem to be so very strict at one moment and so very free and easy at another. They talk about mere sense of thought as if they were immensely important. And then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries as if you had only got to repent and all would be forgiven. But I've come to see that they are right. And this all has to do with eternal perspective. What they are always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on that tiny central self which no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each 
has done something to himself, which unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he is tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is in the long run doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not what really matters. And we see this over and over again in scripture um, with people like David and St. Paul, people who sin big um, in the eyes of the world, um, but who through their conversion and following God become aware that the little sins were just as bad. So this all has to do with what's going on in your consciousness of sin. Lewis continues, remember that as I said, the right direction leads not only to peace, but to knowledge. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you are awake, not while you are sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. When you are not, when you are making them, you cannot see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you are drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. And I wanted to just share this quotation from the great preacher James Montgomery Boyce. Um, and he references Romans 7. Um, I'm going to send in the email a link. Um, I, I hesitate to do this because it's one of my own sermons, but I just preached on Romans 7, and it is very relevant to this chapter. Um, but if you're not a scuba diver, feel free to ignore it. But Boyce puts it this way. The mature Christian knows he is always living in Romans 7. Romans 7 is where Paul says, the good that I want to do, I do not do, and the evil that I do not want to do lies close at hand, and that is what I do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So the mature Christian knows he's always living in Romans 7, apart from the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he knows that dependence on the Holy Spirit is not something that he has attained once for all, but that it is the result of a daily struggle and a constantly renewed commitment. What is sanctification? Is it an awareness of how good we are becoming, or is it a growing sense of how sinful we really are? So we will constantly turn to and depend on Jesus Christ. If we are mature in Christ, we know it is the latter. All of the saints, one of the things they have in common is their deep sense of their own sinfulness. So a couple of very important implications from this chapter. First, learn what's wrong with the Freudian worldview so as to present the Christian worldview as a better alternative. And there is a great resource for this. Um, if you don't know this resource, you have got a real treat in store for you. Um, there is a wonderful course that was taught at Harvard, of all places, 
for years by a medical doctor who was also a psychologist. And this course was called The Question of God. And in it, he posits a debate about the Christian worldview versus the atheistic worldview and which one is right. And he chooses two people, one to argue each side. And he chooses Freud for the atheistic worldview and C.S. Lewis for the Christian worldview. And this course was so popular that it completely sold out every term. And so finally, um, PBS got a grant to make a series about it. And it is excellent. I've taught this series several times uh, and it is absolutely fabulous. There also is a book based on it, but in the series of uh, the video series, which I'll send you a link to, um, basically they hired actors and filmed uh, on location in Oxford and on location in Vienna and have the actors speaking Freud and Lewis's lines. And then they have this panel of people that discuss it. It's really fascinating and it is great preparation to be able to engage in discussion about this because the Freudian worldview has become so pervasive that a lot of Christians have adopted it without even realizing it. So I commend that to you. So that's the first implication and action point. The second is to go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago and remember the freedom of self-forgetfulness and shun judgment and pride, keeping in mind Lewis's idea of differing starting points. That people that have not had a lot of advantages growing up, uh, we shouldn't expect that they are automatically going to be able to hold to the same standard as someone who has had every advantage growing up and has been taught the Christian faith from childhood. But that doesn't mean that we change the standard. What it does mean is we stop judging people and we help them along the way. And then the last thing is to consider the power of choice and its profound implications for our eternal life. And I think Lewis is onto something really important here. I think this is something that Jesus uh, understood deeply. Uh, you see it uh, in the Old Testament about choose today whom you will serve. And the problem for so many of us is we wanna sit on the fence. And the problem with that is that you get torn in two. And there's a beautiful passage about choice from Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, that was preached June 8th, 1941, um, right about the same time that the broadcast talks were starting. And this was a standing room only sermon. And he talks about choice at the end. And I wanna just share this with you. Um, if you've never read The Weight of Glory sermon, I'll send you a link to that as well. It is absolutely fabulous. Listen to these words. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is of course the essential point. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, 
and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That does not mean we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ very laditat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. My friends, if we can ever really get a hold of what Lewis is saying here, it will transform our lives. Let's conclude with this quotation from later on in Mere Christianity. I invite you to think about the implications of this passage with this idea of not being focused on ourselves, what it means to have the moral choice to serve rather than to focus on yourself. Let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word and for the beauty of this description of what it means to be living a life that is being transformed by your indwelling Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess to you how often we are conformed to this world and that our choices are worldly. 
Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would fire our love for you, that we would be transformed, that we would be changed, that the desire of our heart would be to please you, the one in whose image we are made. Lord, we thank you for this material. We pray that you would give us the grace to apply these truths to our lives. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.